Long Division is the kind of novel that you need to experience for yourself. It's a classic picaresque novel. It's a coming of age. There's this kid called City that you will meet and you will fall in love with. And City is a handful. And City will also remind you of the book's author, Kiese Lehman. If you have read Heavy, if you've read How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America, you will recognize Grandma. You will recognize this kid. You will recognize the feelings and the writing and the sentences. You will recognize all of it. So Kiese, thank you so much. For making the time. Thank you so much, Miwa, for having me. I'm really happy to see your face right now. So can we talk about where Long Division started? Because there's a bigger point about Long Division coming yeah. back into the world, and we're going to cover that. But let's talk about the original genesis of this book. I mean, how did it start for you? Um, you know, I love those questions about where books start, because I, I think we, we answer them differently every time. I think this book started on my grandmama's porch when I was like 10, 10 years old. I was looking across the uh, old Morton Road at these really full forests. And I convinced myself that I saw two little kids come up out of this hole from this hole in the ground that had been created from a tornado. Tornado just come torn up like for uh, Scott County. And Mm -hmm. there was this hole in the ground. And to this day, I think I saw these two kids come up out of this hole and go back into the hole. And I asked my friend Shirley to come over. We just sat on that porch watching. And she says she saw one of them come out. So it starts like a lot of stories start with a 10 year old not trying to discern the difference between reality and dream. You know, mm-hmm. and then when I get to grad school, I was at Indiana University, this white third year student disappeared. Nobody knew where she was. The entire mm-hmm. state was looking for her. And then I came back to Mississippi on a break and I was in a Walmart with my grandma and, and I saw all of these missing kid posters like right before you go into Walmart. And most of them were black girls. And right. then I was just like, fuck, yo, like I want to create some sort of story that riffs on and explores the paradoxes of missing Black children, but especially missing Black girls. So right. those two things are sort of like the impetus, but really it starts even before that. Like, you know, when I had to read books that really didn't see me or see the way we talked or spoke. But I think the concrete things are my grandmama's porch and really thinking about, you know, missing Black children and missing Black girls specifically. How long did it take you to write Long Division? <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Like, if I started, if I saw that at 10, I started trying to write about it at 10. It probably took me about 20 years, but I really, really started trying to write a book called Long Division um, in grad school to 1998. So it took me like 10 years, 10 years. Mm-hmm. We've got this picaresque coming of age. We've got this kid, City, who is sent to his grandmother's house. Is it fair to call it rural Mississippi? Oh, you better call that shit rural Mississippi. Okay. It is. It is. <laughs> I mean, because again, like if you came to Mississippi, you might think Jackson, where city is from, where I'm from is right. rural. But for us, it was the epitome of urban. And so when you right. go from Jackson to Forest or to Millahatchee, the fictional town that I'm talking about there, it's, it's rural. It's super duper rural. So here's this kid. He has become internet famous for a very funny reason. That <laughs> I'm going to ask you to explain yeah, so City and his and his arch nemesis Lavender Peeler are competing in this thing called a can you use that word in a sentence contest, right? It's a riff on like spelling bees. Mm-hmm. And for me, I just grew up sort of obsessed with hip hop, uh, obsessed with battles. I read a lot of Ellison, a lot of other, a lot of blues mm-hmm. texts. And so I just wanted to create like a competition at the center of the book based around sentences, because that's what I feel like the dozens are. I feel like hip hop at its root is just like a rhyming sentence contest. Mm-hmm. And City and Lavander have, you know, moved their way through to where they're representing the state in this contest. And then they come to find out that maybe it's been set up all along and maybe they aren't as good at sentences as they think they are. Or maybe the white people who run the contest just didn't want to give them an opportunity to prove how good or bad they were. And and that actually comes from my life as a young person. I was one of those spelling bee kids and uh, 
I never won. And, and when I lost, I was always like, they didn't want, it was, a, it was all, my, my, I can't remember these black families were like, it was a setup. They didn't want you to win. And so I just wanted to flip it. I was like, well, what if they all wanted me to win? What if everybody wanted me right. to win? What would that feel like? So that's, that's where that comes from. But the book, as it started, is a very different thing from what is coming out on June 1st. Oh, yes, indeed. And yes, indeed. you bought the rights back to this novel and you bought the rights back to your first essay collection, How to Kill Yourself yes. Another Slowly in America, with the sole purpose of revising them and putting them back out into the world yes. as they needed to be, which one, I love that as an inveterate revisionist, um, I rework stuff. I, I literally have to have people take things away from me. And me too. I write book copy. I write, book, I, I write fun book copy yeah. and, and I literally have to have someone say to me, you have to let go of that now. Yeah. You cannot do any more with it. And I've, I've gotten better over time, but there was a period where I would just noodle a sentence a little too long. I mean, I think book copy might be the hardest thing to write and revise because you always, I, I assume one would think you can always get closer to inviting the reader into this text. Like I can, mm-hmm. I can change this sentence. I can change this function. That's scary. Actually thinking about revising book copy. I would never, I would never, I would never turn it in ever. It's really exhilarating actually. When you know you've got it right, it's really Ooh. exciting. It, it is, it is that moment. And it's, it's funny because some people could argue it's just ad copy, but you're talking about books. So it's not. Yes. You're finding that mo- that point of entry right. for a reader. But you did that with two books and you did yes. that with two books in a relatively short amount of time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I've been revising both of those books for like five years because, I, again, I just don't feel like anything's ever done. Okay. And, and, and I went to the, the publisher of the uh, initial books and I was like, all right, before I was going to buy them back, I was like, I want to put these revisions in the world. You know, uh, here's some things I want to change about both books. And the person who ran the company was like, no, but if you want to do that, you can make a you can buy them back from me. And, you know, I sold Long Division for like $3,000. I sold How to Sully for like 1000 I was just like, wow, dude, like I'm buying that back from you after we sold whatever amount of copies. But again, Long Division specifically, the book cover was supposed to be a part of the book. It was always supposed to be two different book covers. It's supposed to be a book within a book within a book. Right. And, you know, the way the old one was, you know, so many words on the page, there wasn't enough space for the reader to breathe. And then, you know, we sensibilities changed. Like there was a lot of ableist language in that book that was not checked by the book. So like, I'm, I'm cool having characters in there say racist shit, say sexist things, say ableist stuff, but the book, the, 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 the design of the book has to in some way critique that. And there were just some things in there that I did not critique. And I wanted to go back and, and make that right. closer to what I actually believe now. And there's just some other things in there, like Easter egg things I wanted to pull out. I just wanted to make more room for readers to breathe because I am asking a lot of I mean, it's two books and you're reading to a middle and then you're flipping a book over and you're reading to the middle. So this book ends in the middle and mm-hmm. begins where it ends. So, you know, I'm asking a lot of readers in that way. And I just wanted to make it more inviting and also a little bit more lush to me. I had to say goodbye to a character that I was not prepared to say goodbye to. And I was very mm. mad at you as the writer. And mm. I understand the pure artistic reason. And I was still really mad at you because I really liked this character. I really, I really, <laughs> really liked this character. That's one of the things that I love about books in general. When I've got an author who surprises me and says, well, you know, I know where this is going. Right. You know, I see where this is going. And then I sit there and my jaw is kind of on the table. Yeah, yeah. So how much of the story did you know when you started writing? Though? I mean, well, you know, you've got City. You know, you've, right. he's the anchor. He's absolutely the anchor. You've right. got these great character names. Yeah, details that you know. I mean, the Duke's Hazard and (laughs) boyfriend. You know, the luckiest in the county. That's so funny. 
Right. You know what? Time travel. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I'm I'm, I'm playing with like literature and art making as time travel in that book. You know, and I I, when I first was on tour with that book, I was on the coast, um, Mississippi coast. um, And this white dude who was in a wheelchair came up to me and he kept looking at my book when I was doing a signing. And he was like, you write this? I was like, yeah. And he went and bought it and he wheeled himself out of the um, bookstore. It's a Barnes and Noble on, on the coast. He oh, the Gulfport back. store. Gulfport yes, the Gulfport store. Yeah. <laughs> he, came, he, he went out the Gulfport store. He came back into my signing, what, re, waited in line, and then he said, "This ain't about no goddamn mathematics." <laughs> <laughs> no, it is and not. He, and he threw my book down, and I was, and then you know, but I get similar things from the science fiction people. But I'm like, yeah, there's a bit of science fiction in it, but like this is literary time travel. So started with like. There was this character named City who thought that he was a runaway character. He felt like everyone was writing these like narratives, including his family, definitely white people, white culture, Mississippi. And he wanted to run away. He's like, I don't like the narratives. I mean, it's not the language he uses, but I don't like the way people are imposing their narratives on me. I want to run away. So he's running away from a book while reading a book. So the first draft of Long Division, the -hmm. second book doesn't exist. I needed to re I needed to write that second book so I could understand what city was running away from and what city was running to. And the character who you say disappears you know i wanted to show how like disappearances we want to believe sometimes they're so pure like a stranger comes and takes the child mm-hmm. yes maybe but also in this culture like a lot of us are responsible for the disappearances of yeah. our you know of our children but i will say that character is not gone i will say that that okay. character comes back and that character is not gone i want to say that Writing that character out, I mean, that bruised my heart for like five years. It was tough to write that character out, but I know that character's not gone. I cannot wait to read that book because really I got so attached so quickly. And I'm fond of City and I'm fond of some other characters, but you that's know. the heart. And I mean, there are hard decisions that are made. You're you're flipping between 1985, 1964, mm-hmm. and 2013. Right. And those are all very fraught moments yeah. for Mississippi. I mean, yeah. they're fraught moments for America, but they're also fraught moments for Mississippi. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, 1964, you know, this is right before Freedom Summer, like mm-hmm. really pops off. 1985, we're in the middle of Reaganomics. This is right after Ronald Reagan has come to the Neshoba, mm-hmm. Neshoba State County Fair and really like made a declaration that states' rights were were right, mm-hmm. you know, particularly as it related to Black folk. In 2013, you know, this is post Trayvon. This is in the middle of Obama. So mm-hmm. I wanted to put the Obama, the Reaganomics and Freedom Summer in conversation mm-hmm. in some sort of way that might might not seem organic, but could at least seem interesting. As someone who's lived through both periods, actually, it did feel organic. <laughs> right, right. Good. I hope so. I hope so. so I'm just, I'm, I, and, you know, for listeners, it, I, it sounds like we are slipping around in the story, but it is the language and the mm-hmm. characters and this series of images that you sort of really need to experience and not have someone just talk to you about. I mean, right. we're, we're talking about what drives the art right. and the revision is a lot of what drives the art. This is actually a very different book from what it was when you first published it. Is. It really is. It really is. And, and like you, I, I, I believe that a book doesn't start when you open it. I think when you mm-hmm. look at a book, like that book has started, like you've made a decision whether or not you want to read it. I feel like when you hold a book, the weight of the book says something to mean something to you. This book weighs differently than that other book. It definitely looks different. It is inviting for all of you, for those of you who might, I might be lucky enough that you might want to buy my book. Please know that the book, the art on that book is the beginning of that book. And that art is referenced because that physical book mm-hmm. is referenced mm-hmm. over and over again in that book. And in the middle, I don't know if this is in the one that you got, 
But in the middle, like we see something we don't see in most books. Like I want, like there's a, there's a, there, there are four leaves. Like I want people mm-hmm. to understand, like they are in that hole with us at the end and at the right. middle slash end of that book. And so, yeah, like that wasn't in the first book. It's, it's a different book, heavily inspired, of course, by the first one. But this is the book much more like the book I wanted to put in the world. Mm-hmm. For sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the essay collection, you added what, three or four pieces? Oh, I added like six pieces. I oh, took out okay. about five pieces and I just, and, and I reversed it. Like I started in 2020, 2020, and I go back to the first essay, uh, which was the initial first essay in, in, in How to Slowly, which is about right. my uncle. So it just goes in reverse. It starts here thinking about the pandemic, Trump's America, um, the awakening, and then it goes back, you know, outcast, some time in uh, Poughkeepsie, sure. a lot of time in Mississippi um, as a young person. So, uh, yeah, but, but, you know, these are three different books. And one of the things you said to me before was that the thematics in these, you know, all of these things are similar, mm-hmm. right? Like there's grandmother characters who are very similar. Like there's, mm-hmm. they're, they're, I'm, I'm always interested in writing about what books have done to young people, particularly like black mm-hmm. young people, yep. but I, you know, you need different tools, right? The essayistic way I write about it and how to slowly is different than definitely in what I do in heavy. Right. And as you said, before we started, like what I'm trying to do with comedy and tragedy is wholly different right. along the vision than I've, than I've done in anything I've, 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 I've created before. I want to bring up a line that is from How to Slowly Kill Yourself and Others in America. And it's from an essay called Hey Mama, an essay in Mm -hmm. emails. And I love this essay so much. And you write, Mama, how have we been having the same conversation about language for 30 years? (laughs) Yeah, I think I think that was when my mother was telling me not to use some phrase that I used that she thought was not correct English. And when we had that email conversation, heavy wasn't written yet, but uh, okay, it wasn't written. I mean, that that essay is like the precursor to heavy. Like, right. All right. I'm like, mama, let's talk about some things. My mom was like, okay, I don't really want to talk about that. But so like that essay, like is literally the precursor. And after that essay, I was like, all right, shit, we got a lot more we need to talk about. Uh-huh. But like that line, yeah, my mom was trying to tell me not to break a verb. And that was the first time I'd ever told him, like, mama, like, I'm your child. Like, I know the language because you made me know the language. And if I, as someone who knows the language, you need to let me bend and break and play. And she's like, no, (laughs) no, speak correctly to me. You need practice. Speak correct English out there in the world. If you don't, you're more likely to get destroyed by these people. Same shit she told me when I was 12. She's telling me at 42. So Part of me understands exactly where your mother's coming from because I live in the world. And part of me is with you on the language piece because I would much rather bend language and watch it evolve and watch it change because that's the first signifier of cultural change is is shifts in language. And it's so important. I mean, a whole thing like Asian American doesn't have a hyphen. Right, right. Finally. It's such a tiny thing, but actually for some of us, it's pretty momentous. Oh, it means a lot. It means a lot. I, I don't think we I think I don't think we can ever overestimate what sentences do to our bodies like sentences. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like that's what I'm saying in this book, like like sentences literally destroy entire civilizations mm-hmm. and sentences also help entire civilizations to gain and rise. The thing about Black Lives Matter as a movement, its appeal and 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 and, and the backlash to it are wholly because of the like evocativeness of the sentence. Right. Black lot like that's a sentence, fam. You know, and so we've made a, a sentence into a movement. But what I want to argue is that like the t- make America great again is also a sentence that mm-hmm. is a movement that is responsible for yeah. gazillions of, of people suffering. So 
sentences, you know, they, they, they're always there. And I think they dictate like often, like how our insides move. And this is what long division is really about. These black kids trying to rewrite sentences to, to find themselves in the sentences, because for so long, they haven't seen themselves in the sentences at their schools in their churches in their communities. And so they're like, fuck it. Like we want to write sentences where we see ourselves. Like, can we do this? That's a question. Can we do it? And I mean, I think yes, yes you know, I could sit here and quote you for forever. There's another great line, but this time it's from Heavy. And it's revisiting and rearranging words didn't only require vocabulary, it required will and maybe courage. Revised word patterns were revised thought patterns. Revised thought patterns shape memory. Yeah. I think that is one of the most powerful things I've ever read. And it is, and I can feel it. I'm a full body reader. I will admit it. I get mm-hmm. very involved in what I'm reading. Mm-hmm. And for me, a great book tattoos itself on my DNA and I end mm-hmm. up as a different person because of what I've read. Right. Me too. I've always been a big reader since the time I was small. I've uh, like the worst thing I can think of is running out of stuff to read. That right. is like the worst punishment ever. Like yeah. have I run out of things to read? I will read the cereal box if I have run out of things right. to read. Right. 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 <laughs> I'm that kid. I, yes. And and I'll just say like re, re revision and rewriting is in my practice, like, I mean, that is my practice. That's right. my religious practice. Revision is my religious practice. It's my artistic practice. But rereading is also part of that practice. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, I am someone, partially because I'm a writer, like, I want to understand more about technique and craft from everything, even if it's writers who I can't stand. But mm-hmm. I also think it's hard to, you know, we use, we just throw around this word love, 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 love. Oh, I love that. I love that. But the thing about love is it necessitates, like, re- revisiting. You know, if you love someone, you often want to see them again. If you love a song, you want to hear it again. Mm-hmm. I think books, because they're so unwieldy or because we've been taught that they're unwieldy, a lot of times young folks don't want to go back and reread. Mm-hmm. Older folks definitely don't want to go back and reread. But what I'm trying to encourage with this book is like, I don't know if we've read anything if we haven't gone back and reread it. And I get why we don't want to reread a lot of shit, especially stuff that like writes us out of the readerly process. Right. But the rereading, the rereading is as important to me as the rewriting. Definitely. I find rereading sort of marks me in very specific points in my life. Mm. And, and there's stuff that I loved when I was in my 20s that now I'm just like, oh, that's something you really read in your 20s. Like, yes, I can, underst- I can understand why I loved it. Yes. The best example I can give you, honestly, is Henry Miller's Traffic of Cancer. I read it when I was in yeah. It blew my head up and I was like, oh, once had a conversation with my dad over frozen peas and, and I was going on about freedom and, you know, standing on the lip of the volcano. And he just looked at me and said, when I was your age, we read it for the dirty bits. Okay, my dad just (laughs) and you know what's interesting is like it can re it can work opposite too. So you know, I had to read a rose for Emily by Faulkner, like, you know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, every grade. And because I had to read it in that classroom, which was I'm not gonna say it was a jail cell, but there wasn't much life in that classroom. And we never had to read anything by anyone who looked like us or about us. But I couldn't fuck with that book. I just could not deal with it. I didn't really. But when I reread it post-grad school and I was like, yo, Faulkner is writing from the POV of a town and like Mm -hmm. stuff he's writing about is I was just like, oh, my God. Like, I was like, damn, what was I reading all those years? That's why I think for some of us who have been like written out of so much text, mm-hmm. sometimes it's good to reread the, that stuff that we thought was like unwieldy and like sort of like damaging because a lot of it was. Mm-hmm. But sometimes if you read it outside of those classrooms, sadly, this, the text can come alive. That's what I, I, I mean. A lot of people on the road who are like, yo, I had to read heavy in a class. I didn't really mess with it. I read it post-class and I was like, damn, I felt that. And I was right. like, 
That has everything to do with the text, yeah, but really has everything to do with school and teachers. I came late to Faulkner, too. In high school, I was assigned intruder in the dust, literally because there were no cliff notes. And I was kind of like, <laughs> that's really how you should be picking the book you're teaching. <sighs> also, I thought cliff notes were cheating. So I was like, why? I don't care. Me too. Like, that's Me garbage. Too. I'm going to do the work. And intruder in the dust is not the way to introduce a 16-year-old to Faulkner. Okay. Whoa. It's just not. 16. And, and wow. I, it kept me off of Faulkner for a really long time. Yeah. There's so many writers out there who are doing important work, but I also do just want to be told a story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing, you know, you, you talked a bit about this earlier, but like the essay and fiction for me are different for a lot of reasons, but mm-hmm. you know, in fiction, you, you gotta have a story, you know what I mean? Right. And, and, and so like city, like there's a, like, this is a very talky book. Like these young people talk a lot. And sometimes I think people who read Long Division can forget that, like, they're talking, but that shit is propelling the story forward. Like, there's a movement. Like, you know, that movement happens early on. They get to the event. Whatever happens there happens. City has to go to his grandmother's, and he's there. And while there, the whole shit just explodes. But for me, it was just like, I could definitely just have these kids talking in a room for 150 pages. But what would they be talking about? I want them to move. I want them to right. I want I want them to talk each other out of stasis. I want them to talk each other like into mobility. And so yeah, I, I think it's true. The story matters. Even in essays, the story matters. I think we sometimes fool ourselves into believing that you can just, you know, say what you think because it's an essay. Well, you can, but who's gonna write who's gonna read that? You know, like you have to keep it moving. I think there's so many people who don't know that, but you also have a great piece that I just want to shout out because you have a piece that involves Michael Denzel Smith and Darnell Moore, who are two of my favorite guys on yes. the planet. And I just and the the title of the piece is Echo. Yes. And then it's everyone's names. And I, I've also, I met Kai, I think, when Darnell did a reading for us. Yeah. Yeah. Upper, uh, upper West Side. But Michael and Darnell, it's been really wonderful to see what they've been able to do yes. with this kind of vulnerability that often Black men are not allowed to share in their work. Right. And, and, Marlon, and Marlon just came out with his book, um, yeah. Unca- Burden Uncaged. You know, we've, we've been trying to talk and write through the importance of what we call vulnerability for about decade now that group of that and you know i love i love those men they love me and we wanted to write to each other because we knew if we wrote to each other like directly mm-hmm. we would write into parts of us that we never written into before right. and so like those letters and the responses to those letters i don't know about what this word honest actually means but that might be like the most honest literary engagement i've ever been a part of like especially mm-hmm. kai like what kai is saying in that essay yeah, about tra- about transitioning and about like being this, like, you know, I was once this beautiful black little girl. And you know, like, I am now a black man. Like, now we're going to talk about this and you're going to have to deal with it. And, right. but I'm going to talk about, I want, I want to explore like not just the holes, but the fullness of this transition and this move. I thought Echo could hold all of that. And, and I think it did. You know, I think that's the most important piece in that book. It does, but that sense of vulnerability too, I mean, that is one of the pillars of your work, whether it's the novel or the essay or the mem- the essay collection or the memoirs. If you're unwilling to be vulnerable, then those books don't exist as they do in the world. Yeah. I mean, vulnerability or frailty or softness, like all of those are, again, are ingredients for revision. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, we, 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 we have to live in this world, so we have to put up hard sort of cloaks and stuff to get through. But when I'm doing my art, I don't want that cloak up. I want I want to be able to be a better person in my art than when I'm going in than when I came out, going coming out than when I came right. when I went in. And for that to happen, I have to look into those those like calcified scabs, 
kind of get beneath them and then really write about what because when you go, when you get belief beneath the scab, you're writing to what connects me to you, you to mm-hmm. Charles, Charles to Cynthia, Cynthia to Hassanati. That's where people's really, well, you know, I couldn't believe how universal it is. What the fuck are you talking about? We're humans. Right. <laughs> we are humans. Like, you know, humans, humans. We are human beings with scars. And so I just want to write lovingly about those scars. I think the more we can do that, the closer we get to whatever comfort. Yes. Passion. I mean, that that is always going to be. And, and you do write very compassionately about lots right. of difficult moments, not just for mm-hmm. you and, and not just decisions you made or decisions right. your mom made, but also your grandma's of a generation. And I worship your grandmother. I yeah. have never met her. I've only met her on the page, I should say. And mm-hmm. I worship this woman. But she also really does care what other people think. And your mom Definitely. really cares what other people think. For people of our generation to be able to say, hey, wait a minute, actually, I need to carve a different path. We need to change right. these conversations. Right. It can be really difficult yeah. for our elders to understand oh. what we're trying to do and how we're trying to do. Yes, indeed. I mean, that is, that is, that's, that's heavy, but that's also running um, fast water running in, in, mm-hmm. in long division, mm-hmm. you know, because, because, because for me, it's, it's easy to think about anti-Blackness as it is invested in by white Mississippians. Like, you know, and, and I can't avoid, I will not avoid that. And I think a byproduct of that is sometimes the way we, as, as family, really encourage children to shut the fuck up and be quiet, right? And, and, and just accept this narrative and all these multiple, multiple narratives we're placing on you, just find your way in the narrative. Don't push back against the narrative. And I get it when it's coming from my grandmother, my mother, they're worried, they're like, Till got killed for nothing. My uncle got killed for nothing. People mm-hmm. we know got killed for less. And I get it. But at the same time, I'm like, while I'm here, I want to be free. Mm-hmm. Trust me, mm-hmm. like you, you've raised me to be ethically free. I'm not going to hurt anybody. But I want to be able to talk how I want. I want to be able to ask questions. I'm going to be respectful. But we can't be respectful or even like grow. If you're always telling me, don't talk like that in front of them. Don't ask that question. The answer to this question can't be because I said so. That's a bullshit ass answer. And, and I'm just saying, I want young children, particularly young black children in Mississippi, to be like to, to be encouraged to step outside of these narratives freely and ethically. And I don't think we're doing that. You know, I'm not blaming the families at all. I'm actually blaming something going way beyond the family. Right. But I also think within the families, we got to do a better job of, of being like being free. And I understand why. I understand that the consequences for that are dire. But I, I just think we have to. Can we? switch for a second to literary influences, because I felt like while I was reading Long Division, I was hearing echoes of uh, Tony Cade, Bambara, and I was hearing echoes of Gail Jones, specifically Corregidora. I just, I felt like those women were sort of in the back yeah. of your brain somewhere as you were writing Long yeah. Division. Who else is Because you've got some other, I, I think you have, and it's, and I'm not talking about Faulkner or Wealthy, right. like, and I get their role in your education too, but I feel like there are writers that sort of sit in the back of your brain and you're kind of going, yeah. One of the writers that sits there is the writer who introduced me to Gail Jones, this, this writer, Calvin Herrington. You know, mm-hmm. I got kicked out of Millsaps College and went to Jackson State and then eventually went to Oberlin. And the reason I went to Oberlin was because the literary critic, Jerry Ward, he wrote the most incredible introduction of Black Boy one will ever read. He was like, you need to go to Oberlin to work with Calvin. I was like, who is Calvin? He was like, Calvin Hurt. And he wrote Sex and the Race in America. He wrote Scarecrow. So when I get up there, 
Calvin is just like, he's got this beautiful laugh. He's like an old dude. He's my professor. We used to go to gym, play basketball. He's shooting left-hand jumpers, right-hand jumpers. Taught us Corregidora. And again, I've been in classes. I've been in English classes before that. I never read Gail Jones, but the tone, like the the, the horrific tone that Gail Jones sets with Corregidora is something mm-hmm. I definitely wanted to try to set in long division and, and, then, and then try to write through with lines. Mm-hmm. And characters that were a little, you know, um, not necessarily like traditionally realist. And then Tony Cade, I mean, I, I ran up on Tony Cade and Millsaps College. And uh, whew, I mean, I, I write about that in heavy. The first time I read the first sentence in Grill of My Love, I was just like, mm-hmm. oh, my God, you mean you mean to tell me sentences can make me feel like a roller coaster made me feel like rap music made me feel like a good ass fucking dinner, like a kiss on the cheek. Like I didn't know until I read that the words could do that. And then sitting on, you know, I got a lot of right on me. I got a lot of Morrison and Jasmine, you know, that's my heart. Like I'm, I'm, right. old, I mean, we're different writers, but that's the writer I most want to be. Like if I couldn't be me, I want to be Jasmine. If I, if I couldn't have my tools, I want to, I want to have Jasmine because I think she can do anything. She's, mm-hmm. she's proven she can do the essay. She's proven she can do yep. memoir. She can do different types of novelistic writing. So Jasmine is always right there, but also it's just a lot of music and a lot of TV too. All of which contributes to the culture. I mean, again, all of that yeah. pushes language forward. Right. If you think about music and the challenges that music has always faced from certain corners, you know, it's to this, it's to that, horrible things will happen, everything else. Well, maybe it's also just a release valve for a lot of kids who don't have space otherwise, or certainly don't hear themselves anymore. There are writers, and you're one of them, where you can quote Shakespeare as fast as you quote a lyric. I think that really matters. And if you listen to some of these songs, and really listen, just listen to the lyrics or read the lyrics, it makes so much sense. Absolutely. And, you know, like people of, of like my generation, you know, we we came along like right before hip hop starts. Mm-hmm. Yep. And then and, the, and then the culture just a lot of us got baptized in that culture, mm-hmm. meaning like we started to walk differently. We started to talk differently. We started mm-hmm. to think differently about sound and words and and love and body. But like when we went into our schools, our teachers never acknowledged that this sort of like baptism, cultural baptism mm-hmm. had happened. So my entire time I'm in high school, no teachers talk about music, period. They don't talk about hip hop. But in doing that, you're not talking about us. We were we we literally came to school reeking of hip hop, like reeking of it. And like what we needed was someone, some older person to be like, I see what y'all are reeking of. Talk to me about what that shit makes you feel. Right. So, but, but but they did the antithesis. And so what I want to do in my books is not do that, right? Like mm-hmm. I want to not just bring back hip hop into in text at all. But what I also want to do is, again, show these Black young characters who are striving for some semblance of free and some semblance of connection. And unlike Ellison, I don't want to talk about this person in solitary terms. I don't want them to be under the ground alone. I want, I want there to be a collective because I think the most meaningful Black culture productions in this country come from Black folks going underground, creating, often for each other first, and then for the rest of the world. So that's why at the end of that book, those characters are under that ground. You know, in some mm-hmm. ways, it's it's not it's not innovative. It's like a, a hearkening back to a lineage, a creative lineage. Like, this shit wants to destroy us? Okay. They want to put us under the ground? Okay. Let's go under the ground. Let's go in this dungeon. Let's go in this hole, and let's make art, and let's love each other on this art. We got to come up eventually, but before that, let's try to make art for us by us. That's Wait, what I'm trying to show. Are you telling me you're working on a sequel to Long Division? Is that oh, that's done. That's done, man. 
That's done. That's, I, awesome. that's what I'm saying. I, I would love. I'm. I'm. You know, whether Kathy and them let me put it out. That's another. That's another story. But okay. Then, well, we can quietly work on her. Okay. <laughs> okay. I would really like to read that book. Who are you reading right now? That's making your head explode. Who's great? Ooh, I just read Brian Broom. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Punch, punch guys. I mean, real talk. I'm, I'm a. I'm a. I'm a Mississippi supremacist. Because everybody thinks the worst about my state. I always want to talk uh-huh. about my state. So incredible people doing work. But was what they're doing in Pittsburgh right now is scary. It's really exciting. Damon, Visha, yeah. Brian. And I'm sure there are more people that I, uh, oh, Nona. You know what I mean? Like, they're, they're just, this is their moment, fam. And I think it's not a moment. I think this is them. Like, they are going to be creating incredible, death-defying art. So I'm reading all of those people right now. Yeah, um, The Secret Lives of Church Ladies blew my mind. I have actually a perfect story collection, and I am very hesitant to say something is perfect. Yeah, I will tell you, though, Jasmine's Sing Unburied Sing is an actually perfect, it is a physically perfect novel. Yes. The, the tension is perfect. The yes. Everything is just spot-on perfect. And the first time I interviewed her, I, uh, I just looked at her and said, is JoJo okay? And she's <laughs> I, I am a full body reader. I, yeah, I me absolutely too, right. I commit to these narratives. And she's, and she's an a full body writer, right? I'm sure she exactly. I'm sure she, yeah. Exactly. And really, like the idea that I'm still thinking about this kid months, years mm. after I read Sing Unburied Sing, like I have a huge appreciation for that. But then the secret lives of church ladies rolls around, and I it is one of the smartest, tightest. Literally, there's not a wasted word. And I'm frequently a person who says, you know, that could have been shorter. <laughs> you know, I don't know if you've ever interviewed Disha, but we're, we we became like really close friends in the mm-hmm. last two years. Uh-huh. And so we were going to do this podcast together. We were going <gasps> to interview all, all of, this was before before she popped off. Some things happened and we couldn't do it. But she was like, Kese, I got three more stories to write before I'm done with my collection. And she was like, can you read it? And I was like, hell yeah, I'll read it. I read that shit. And I was like, I don't even know the word to describe. It's that word when you read perfect art. And I'm like, three more stories? Do you have to write three more stories? She's like, yeah, you know, for symmetry's sake. And I was like, but these are so good. Like, you don't want to do, you don't want to just rush three stories. She's like, "Mm, I got this. And then she fucking like, you know, comes up with like Peach Cobbler. And, oh, like, that story. No, she just she just did it. And and then to see the world do what the world doesn't normally do, which is to love on like incredible art that didn't come through the traditional corporate mechanism, you know, like that's West, I think West Virginia press, I think. It, it is. And it blew my mind that it was the yeah. university of West Virginia press. I, and I, that says us so much about where we are. That is not a, that, that I'm big up in West Virginia press, but I'm also saying something's wrong in the, in the, in the industry mm-hmm. for that book to come out with West Virginia press, but and it may, and maybe if it comes up with somebody else, maybe it's different. I get all of that. But somebody who has some money and has a budget was supposed to be like, that shit is perfect. Come over here. It deserves everything. <laughs> and Damon is one of the funniest dudes Ooh, I can think of. I Damon. love that. He is so funny. And, and, and the thing about Damon is like, you know, it's just hard to be funny on the page. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I love Damon. And he is, I mean, I think he was a like a, a scary, formidable writer when he came in. Mm-hmm. I used to read Very Smart Brothers way back in the day. Yep. But that dude is a writing demon right now. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. with the essay, he can make it do anything. Yeah. He can make the essay do anything. So but um, he and Brian Broom. The vulnerability that you have. 
And that's mm. part of what makes it, I mean, he would be very funny on the page, but because he's willing to be vulnerable, because right. he's willing to say the things that he's willing to say and own his mistakes. I mean, you have yeah. a moment in heavy where you're like, I didn't do right by my students. No, I didn't. And that was a moment for me when I was reading that book where I thought, okay, I need to know this guy. Like I need to know, because who in the world, I have never heard of any professor say I made a mistake. That's terrible. That's terrifying because of what we talk about revision, right. because, because there is no education without revision. But if, if we're not admitting to ourselves and to other people that we failed, the most important people we'll ever interact with our students, how are we going to stop failing our students? And so that was really hard to write. And I and I and I wrote and, and Kathy made me cut a whole bu- bunch of that because I've written about the ways I failed my students profoundly. And then right. Kathy was like, KSA, nah, bro, you you know, you, you got a job. We don't need to. We get it. You fail. We don't need to go deeper. Right. Um, and she, right. and I was like, you, sh- you, you sure you want to cut that? And she's like, trust me, you, you gonna want me to cut this. And I'm like, all right, let's do it. But, but for me, I can't talk all that shit. I'm talking heavy about my educational experiences. And then that, like, when I became an educator, I was just like, you know, perfect shit. I, right. I was, and I am a work in progress who often fails people, but I feel like I'm less, le- less likely to fail people if I admit to failing people. And that's true. You know, like that's the truth. It's true. I don't, I don't think you just have to like admit, I don't think admittance is the work, but it's hard to do the work if we don't admit when we fail. Well, I think too, that's where the art comes from. Sorry to sound like the queen of cliches for a second, but if you're not willing to do the work and you're not willing to be vulnerable and you're not willing to be honest and you're not willing to revise, then where are you? No one, mm-hmm. no one produces a clean first draft. I don't care who you are. No Nobody. one produces a clean first draft ever. Nobody. That has never happened in the history of the universe. <laughs> you know what I tell my students who love, who love Jasmine? I'm mm-hmm. like, yeah, but you know the thing, you're crazy. I'm like, the craziest thing about Jasmine is that she fucking revises. Yeah. Now, if she revises, you mean to tell me you can't revise? Yep. Like this this person who we all look way up to, you know, Baldwin revised, Morrison revised. Okay. If those people can revise in practice, I think we have to. What do you want readers to know about Long Division? I want readers to know that it's okay to go into a book that is about hard things with the expectation that this will be fun. And I don't think fun necessarily means you're going to necessarily know, know what happened. I think it's a book you need to reread if you want to know, know everything that happens. But I also don't want you to shortchange what you do know what happens and what you do know. And what you do know, I think, from reading that book even once, is that these are like some very strange characters who have been, had everything imposed on them and they're trying to get out through sentences, through talking, through love and through sentences. I think if you go into this book wanting to have fun, allowing yourself to see what young people think about the ways we impose structures on them, I think you're going to be happy and satisfied. And if not, not. But like, it's a, it's a, what I loved about Jasmine blurbing it and Tommy Orange blurbing it is that, you know, I gave it to him at two different times Mm -hmm. and they both were like, you know, this is, you know, the writing is great and all that, but they were like, this shit was fun. It was fun. Yeah. It was a fun book. You know, I want to rewrite a fun book. And Tommy is exactly the guy who would get this. Yes. There There is one of the most kinetic novels I've ever read. And it yes. really feels like it's an, even though it's set in the Bay Area, it feels like a very LA novel to me. Yeah. And, Ooh, and I wonder what I you would say to that. Time. Sorry, Tommy. <laughs> I and you know, book. you know, I love the book, but I still always. I love that book. Because of the energy. Yes. It's the energy. Yes. It feels like a 70s movie in a way. 
It does. You I'm know, I'm a lot of metaphors here. This is very but it is. It, you know, I, I think, I mean, you know, you've named books that I think changed the way novels are written. I think seeing changed the way people wrote novels, posts. I know they're there, changed a lot of how people Absolutely. are going to, and, and not, not just change what corporations want to publish, but also, I mean, but that matters, but also change the way writers feel like they can write. And, yes. and we all know as people, when we see somebody modeling a kind of freedom, like mm-hmm. we, we, we get permission to try to, to, to do freedom a different way. I think that's what Tommy Orange and, and Jasmine Ward do, do best. Like their writing encourages me to try to do freedom differently. And that's, yeah. that's what you can ask of, a, of an author. So what are you working on now? Oh man, I have a book due to Kathy today. Um, <laughs> it's called, it's called, it's called, and so on. I'm wearing this shirt. Um, okay. and, and, and I, and I'm not supposed to talk about it at all, but it's, it's the hardest thing I've ever written, but it's also, hopefully it'll be the most beautiful thing. I'm, I'm working on some TV and film stuff, um, that, that I can't talk about a lot. And, oh, and I have, I have, I have an incredible picture book coming out, um, with Random House, oh, uh, Kuala awesome. Random House in June next year. It's, it's okay. a, called City, City, Summer, Country Summer. Oh, that's awesome. That sounds really, really great. Yeah, I think you're going to like it. As someone who likes to do the bifurcated things, as you know, yes. <laughs> it sounds kind of perfect for me, but also yeah. written by you, so it's going to be great. Kese, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you again. It's always thank great to so see you. Much, I would really just like to hang out with you all day. Poured Over is a Barnes & Noble production. The show is available on Apple, Spotify, and Stitcher. Please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts.